910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back. Today, we're starting a new series that's going to last for 12 weeks on the book of Daniel called Reading Between the Lines. Yes, we said lines, L-I-O-N-S, not L-I-N-E-S. You know, we try to be creative when we make up our names. <laughs> we do. Once in a while, I come up with a dumb one. It's kind of like coming up with a name for trivia. But anyway, <laughs> we're trying to be creative. So let's start this uh, th- these lessons on Daniel off by saying a few things about the book in general. First, Daniel was written while he was in captivity shortly after Cyrus of Persia captured Babylon in 539 B.C. Some scholars have tried to say that the book of Daniel was not written by him, and they date the book at a later date, partly or mostly because there are parts of it, which we'll mention later, that are so specific to what happened in history that those people can't accept that Daniel wrote these things back then. Right. They were future to Daniel, their history to us. But if you're a Christian, you know that God can do anything, even give a man specific details about things that are going to happen later on. And also, if you're a Christian, you should believe what the Bible says. And this late date theory contradicts what the book of Daniel itself says, because verse 9-2 and 10-2 indicate Daniel is the author and that it was indeed written shortly after the capture of Babylon by Cyrus. In addition to that, Jesus associates the book with Daniel in Matthew 24-15. That's some pretty good credentials. (laughs) I think so. As a Christian, you're going to, you know be a naysayer about Jesus? No. So the overarching theme of Daniel is God's sovereign rule and control of history. All throughout history, God is on the throne. The nations are doing his bidding in everything. God is using mankind's sinful decisions, their passions, their desires, and even their incompetence to work out his plans. Yes. And we should begin by giving some of the backstory to the book of Daniel. All along, God's people had been warned that breaking his law was going to result in punishment. Leviticus 26 warns of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. In particular, Leviticus 26.33 says, And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. And after the Israelites moved into the promised land, they eventually split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom fell to Assyria, and the Bible says the king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria. And they relocated them to three different places, scattering them amongst three different other people groups, according to 2 Kings 18.11. And the following verse tells why it happened, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant. They neither listened nor obeyed. So Judah, the southern kingdom, wasn't obeying God either for the most part. Their king at that time was named Hezekiah, and he was fairly decent king compared to most of the other kings and definitely compared to the kings of Israel. And the Bible says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to 2 Kings 18.3. But he had a problem. Assyria was now on his kingdom's doorstep and were actually starting to step over the line. Right. And Hezekiah gets reassurance from the prophet Isaiah that God would take care of them in the city of Jerusalem. And King Hezekiah is given tangible evidences 
that God is in control of absolutely everything, including the movement of the sun, showing his control over nature, and even over life and death. But either in a time of spiritual weakness or in a moment of pridefulness, Hezekiah shows the treasury, the armory, and all the goods of the kingdom to an envoy that's come from the nation of Babylon, which at that point was a weak nation. Yeah, at that point. Mm-hmm. And what was wrong with showing this Babylonian envoy all the goods? He was showing them that he was in a position to make an alliance with and help stand against Assyria. King Hezekiah had started to rely on man, not God, to save Jerusalem. And we're telling you this because when the prophet Isaiah finds out what the king did, he prophesizes using God's word, of course, behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. But that prophecy won't be fulfilled in Hezekiah's lifetime. After Hezekiah dies, two wicked kings ruled over Judah followed by a third very godly king named Josiah. And it was during Josiah's reign that Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, later known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, would have been born. These guys would have spent their first 10 or so years, because we're not exactly sure what their ages are, but about their first 10 or so years of their lives under this godly king Josiah's rule. And that's one of the reasons that they had such a strong faith in God and knew and trusted him, as we're going to see as we go through the book of Daniel. And by the time Daniel and his three friends were in their teens, King Josiah was dead. Judah was once again under wicked rulers and Babylon had become the world superpower. Babylon not only takes over Assyria, but they take over Judah and Jerusalem and they exile most of the people to Babylon. Daniel and the other people from the southern kingdom of Judah going into exile in Babylon, are the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy to King Hezekiah. Just as God promised in the prophecy, they, and eventually all the goods, were carried off to Babylon. Right. The book of Daniel is part history and part apocalyptic. If you've heard us talk about some of the other books of the Bible with apocalyptic language, you'll know that it was a genre of writing that was used to encourage people who were enduring times of extreme suffering to give them hope. The Israelites were suffering during Daniel's time during their exile in Babylon. Daniel's visions reminded them that God is in control of all things and that he will eventually deliver them and bring about a glorious kingdom that will never end. Now that we have the backstory, let's read Daniel. I'll start by reading chapter 1, 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. 
and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So the first thing to take notice of is exactly what we've said over and over. It was the Lord's will that they were taken to Babylon. The prophet Jeremiah had been warning them to turn from their sins, but they didn't. Jeremiah 25, 8 to 11 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all those surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Well, that's a pretty specific prophecy. Yes, it is. And there's a lot of I wills in there. It's clear that God incited the kings of these other lands to do his bidding. That's how it works. Those kings were working for their own purposes, whether noble or sinful or prideful or whatever their reasons were. But it's very clear that God was in control and incited them. Daniel 1 verse 2 says, the Lord gave. He handed the king and some of the stuff and the brightest and the best over to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon at that time. Ephesians 1.11 and other scriptures tell us that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Nebuchadnezzar didn't know he was serving the Lord when he conquered and exiled them, but he was. John Calvin says that Nebuchadnezzar as God's servant, and this is Calvin's quote, is to be referred to God only, who governs by his hidden and incomprehensible power, both the devil and the ungodly, so that they execute, though unwittingly, whatever he determines. Love that. It's a great quote. It's a great quote. Yep. Daniel and this first group of the brightest and best exiles spent three years learning the language, the literature, they had their names changed, and they were supposed to eat the food of the king. We wonder why would the king serve these captives the best food in the land, want them taught, change their names? Well, the answer is assimilation. The best way to assimilate someone into your culture is to teach them your ways, get them to like your food and lifestyle, and give them a new name, a fresh start. Yeah. Assimilating into a new culture means to absorb into the culture or tradition of the population or group where you are. And it probably didn't hurt that they had once been the nobility in the land. It probably would have helped other people to do the same. So conquering kingdoms would take many people back to their own homeland while leaving some of their own people in the conquered land with a few of the original inhabitants there left to help them. You're basically mixing the conquered people with your people in both of the lands. And it was done to force the conquered people to learn and understand new information and concepts. In other words, indoctrinating them to make them similar and eventually the same as your own people. It's a smart military move. Doing this usually means that within a few generations, the old national identity would be gone and the people would become as if they always lived there. I just heard a Russian defector say this exact same thing this morning. Yeah. He said it takes 15 to 20 years to completely indoctrinate and assimilate a culture into the way you want them to be. Yeah. This lessened ideas of revolt and uprisings from the people you're taking captive. 
Assimilation is hard on exiled people, no matter what the reason they're taken out of their homeland and no matter how good it was where they end up. Right. Learning the language and literature would have introduced Daniel and his friends to polytheism, which is worship of many gods. They would have been introduced to all the gods of the Babylonians. It would have also introduced them to the magic arts, to sorcery, and to astrology. As for their original Hebrew names, two of them contain Hebrew components meaning God, and two of them contain components Yah, which shortened, is a shortened form of Yahweh, which means the Lord. So Daniel means my judge is God. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. And Azariah, Yahweh is helped. So that's a problem. Nebuchadnezzar didn't want them left with names that reminded them of their God. Plus, part of the assimilation, he wanted them to have Babylonian names. This was what they used to do to the Native Americans when the Americans came and took over. They gave the Native Americans American-sounding names as all part of assimilation. Mm. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Meshiel, he called Meshach. And Azaria, he called Abednego. It's disputed what their new Babylonian names mean. Some commentators tie the new names to Babylonian gods, and some don't. But one thing's clear. Nebuchadnezzar had in mind for them to forget about the one true God. So let's read the rest of the passage, starting in verse 8, chapter 1. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, who the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the used to eat in the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all the kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. I want to digress for a moment and say one thing before we go any further about this vegetable and water thing. Vegetables and water will not put muscle on you. This was a supernatural work of God. It's not put in there as a diet for us to follow. Right. That's right. The Daniel diet, as it's called, has been marketed today as a Bible-based plan for spiritual, emotional, and physical health. While the diet in the marketed plan may be a good diet, God's word should not be used out of context for gaining wealth or status. And we should reject this type of thinking. 
This part of the Bible is not in here for us to follow as a diet. Jabez's prayer is not a mantra for getting blessings. And the Bible isn't to be used in the manner of seven easy steps towards anything, like happens with the Proverbs a lot. We need to reject this kind of false teaching. Yeah. And thank you for clearing that up, Rose. I mean, I, that just irks me to death. I know it irks you. I that's know why I, something that That's <laughs> why I had to digress for a moment. So getting back to Daniel and his friends, Daniel and his friends learned what the pagan king wanted them to learn. There's nothing wrong with that. How does that relate today? Well, it's actually good for Christians to learn about other religions and things like ungodly social agendas like Black Lives Matter and critical race theory. It helps us be aware. There's nothing sinful about learning about those things. Absolutely. And likewise, right. there was nothing sinful about responding to a new name. Daniel and his three friends didn't buck the system when their names were changed. They didn't pitch a fit and insist on being called by their Hebrew names. No, they didn't. They went along with the assimilation and the indoctrination when it didn't compromise their beliefs. But when the assimilation and indoctrination became sinful, they drew a line in the sand. Verse 8 tells us that Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the king's food. What would be defiling about the food? Well, we're not exactly told. The Bible doesn't give us specific on what type of food was being served, so we don't really know. But we can speculate. You know. It could have been that the food was not allowed by the dietary laws found in Leviticus 11, 1 to 47, or that the blood had not been drained from the meat, according to Leviticus 17, 10 to 14, or that the food had been sacrificed to idols. And that was prohibited in Exodus 34, 15, Numbers 25, 2. Regardless, there was a problem with the food that went against their beliefs and it went against scripture. Absolutely. The one thing we see in all four of these young men is that their demeanor is commendable. In Daniel 1, 8a, we're told Daniel had resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. They're steadfast in their decision not to sin, but they aren't fighting. They aren't arguing, and they're very diplomatic. Daniel 1, 8b says, so he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself. Even when defying orders, as we're going to see later, they're not abusive, they're not hateful, they're not acting like jerks to those who are ruling over them. And the reason they're not is because they trusted God. They entrusted themselves, their very lives, to God. They had a firm grasp of God's sovereignty, and knowing and believing that made them able to stand firm. Daniel 1.9 is another example showing us God's sovereignty. It says, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. The Lord turned the hearts of men to show favor towards Daniel and his friends, just like he did with Joseph in Genesis 39.2, and as Solomon tells us in Proverbs 16.7, and as we see in many other places in the Bible, God's sovereignty controls the hearts of men. He hardens them, as we see with Pharaoh, one example of which we find in Exodus 9.12 with Moses. He does it with heathen minds in Romans 1.28. He changes men's hearts from stone to flesh, as we see in Ezekiel 11.19. And he regenerates them so they can respond to the gospel message. Absolutely. God is in control. Yes. And sometime after Daniel's group had been exiled, Jeremiah wrote a letter to the exiles to tell them how God wanted them to live while they were in the pagan land. Jeremiah 29, 4 to 11 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, 
build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So the four young men were living like God wanted them to live, as they're told Mm -hmm. through Jeremiah, and he uses them mightily. God gave them wisdom and understanding far exceeding any of the magicians and enchanters of that day. And after their training, they were put into high positions. They were working for the good of the place they were in. They had hope of a future restoration of their people to their homeland. Jeremiah 29, 11 gets taken out of context and used to promote the idea that Christians will be wealthy and prosperous. But the promise was to God's remnant of people who he was going to bring back to Jerusalem someday. And the promise is culminated for us in Christ. We have a hope of a future and a true homeland in the new heavens and earth. That's right. The chapter ends by telling us that Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, who conquered Babylon in 539 BC. Some of you listening may wonder why we're talking about assimilation and indoctrination so much. If you're asking yourself that question, it's because as Christians, we are foreigners in a strange land. Yes, we certainly are. Mm-hmm. First Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Hebrews 11, Psalm 119, and other passages also tell us this world is not our home. And the world loves it when professing Christians start to look and act like them. But we're not supposed to. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The attempt at assimilation and indoctrination is happening all around us. It's happening by what's taught in schools and universities, through TV and movies, through books, not just nonfiction books, but fiction books too. It's what Satan wants. Absolutely. And I can't tell you, you mentioned, you know, not just nonfiction, you don't have to pick up some nonfiction book about something pagan to get it. I can't tell you the number of times that John will start reading a sci-fi book and end up putting it down because it's littered, littered with sinful stuff, pushing a social or political agenda. It's just bad. I'm going to quote from our series, Deciphering Revelation here. The more society gives into temptation or compromises, the more it normalizes sin, the more likely it is that we, meaning Christians, will capitulate in those areas. And that's all Satan wants, to make sin Mm -hmm. seem normal. Yep. Take sex changes, for example. 50 years ago, it was an outrageous thing to hear about, and you only heard of it once or twice. Now it's a normal part of society, so much so that it's paid for by insurance companies, and some people who claim to be Christians are buying into the idea that going against God's creation of male and female is normal. 
And just to be clear, we're not talking about hermaphrodites who generally have a medical issue. That's the result of the fall. And that's something that's affected all of creation. Right. We're not talking about them. We're talking about this being a normal, accepted, and almost everybody knows somebody type of situation. We get desensitized to this stuff. When someone wants to push a political or social agenda, what do they do? They indoctrinate us by bringing the subject out to the public, bring it out there for everybody to see, and then people start talking about it. And after a while, there's enough people defending those actions as not sinful or maybe even good that it starts to seem normal and then eventually okay. And after a while, we start to accept sinful behavior, and we may even question whether it really should be deemed sinful in the Bible which is ultimately questioning God. Right. And then we attack those who oppose it. And what they'll do is they'll have someone who makes statements that are sound so incredibly outrageous or inflammatory, like Alexandria Stasio-Cortez, and soon something from the middle doesn't sound so strange or foreign. Regardless of the tactic or what's going on around us, we have to stand firm against sin. We do. And so- Christians have to draw lines in the sand on a whole host of things. And it's not always easy. For instance, some Christians today have drawn a line in the sand about this COVID vaccine. Some have believed that a vaccine you get yourself protects other people. And so they believe it's going against the good of society and therefore sinful not to get it. Some have asked, is it sinful to get the vaccine? So those Christians have investigated each brand that's available, the Pfizer, the Moderna, the Johnson & Johnson, and they're asking, how is it made? How is it tested? Were aborted fetuses used to make it? Were aborted fetuses used to test it? And things like that. And then they've made their decision and drawn the line in the sand. Right. And that's just a, happens to be the hot topic that seems to put Christians pitted against each other. Exactly. And like always, we need to carry our decisions through to more than just one thing if it relates to other things. If we fall on the side of this vaccine being tested or made in certain ways that are sinful, then we'd better be asking, what do we do about all the other ones we've gotten or have had to get for ourselves and for our kids? And if we've gotten the vaccine because we're convinced it's good for society, then what else do you need to submit to because it will be good for society? Good we just question. need to be yeah. thinking people, renewing our minds. We do. We need to always be thinking about these things. And the decisions that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to make, at least in the examples that were given in the Bible, they were pretty much straightforward when it came to whether they'd be trespassing God's word or not. Some of our decisions, like the ones we've been talking about, where do you draw the line in the sand? Some of them are going to be straightforward too, but some of them not so much. Right. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God tells the exiles in Babylon to marry, have children, seek the good of the nation where they were captive. So ultimately, we should seek that good. So do we get a vaccine just because they're telling us to? No, we do our research. If we're seeking the good of society as a whole, we ask the question, is this good for society as a whole? Is it necessary? Are there potential problems with it? And then we have to decide what we do with our findings. Always more decisions to make. Yeah. You know, do we post it on social media? Do we tell our friends and family? What do we do if it's going to cause an argument? Don't the post big... it on social media. I'm just going <laughs> to butt in here. Okay. Well, don't. Yeah. Because they're going to take it off anyway. Or put that big sign on it, which I always X out anyway. Anyway, here's the deal. Can we handle ourselves the way Daniel and the other three handled themselves in the midst of drawing our line? Can we be steadfast in our decisions to not sin without fighting and arguing? 
Can we do it without being abusive or hateful towards other people and acting like jerks? And Chris, that's not always easy. I mean, no. let's be honest. It's not always easy. It's a struggle for me every day. Yeah. Especially stay, if I watch the news. To stay humble and respectful against those who are really opposing what you believe. It's hard. But we need to remember that God's on the throne and he's ruling and reigning over every single thing. That's the key to helping a Christian stand firm and also the key to staying respectful and humble. When you realize that he's in control or you bring that to your mind again, then you can relax a little bit about it and not be so, well, I'm speaking for myself, not be so dogmatic about it. (laughs) Anyway, a couple more things about the book of Daniel. We have to be careful when we read the story of Daniel and when we teach it to our children or other people's children that we don't make Daniel or Shadrach or Meshach and Abednego the heroes of the story. The hero's God. It's always God. He saves his people. He's already promised that he would save a remnant and bring them back according to what we read from Jeremiah. That's right. That's absolutely right. And our hero, Jesus, is coming to take his remnant, the church, home. Something else to think about from this first chapter of Daniel. Not everybody was taken into exile. This is only the first of three Babylonian invasions of Judah. This first one in 605 BC, the next is going to come like 598, 597 BC, and then the last one in 589 to 588 BC. And even at the end of that, some people are still left behind, usually to help the people who stay behind from the invading country. And it's usually the poorest ones that are left behind. To our human minds, it might seem like the ones taken into exile are the ones who are most under God's wrath and judgment. But a prophecy that came later through the prophet Jeremiah paints a different picture. It does. The Lord showed Jeremiah two baskets of figs. One is full of good figs and the other bad ones. Jeremiah 24 verses 5 and 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. It was through the exiles in Babylon that the restoration of God's people would come, not from those left behind. And Jesus came from those exiles. That's right. Jeremiah's prophecy about the ones left behind was, I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave them and their fathers. Yeah, the point is, we don't know the big picture. The exiles might have wished they could have been the ones left in their homeland, but it's not like that was like a fun place to be. The Babylonians had their own people in charge. No, it wasn't fun, but they still might have wished to be able to stay. They didn't know what God had planned because Jeremiah prophesied about the figs after they were already gone. That's right. And we don't know what God is doing. We don't know the big picture, but he is always on the throne, ruling and reigning. Amen to that. And that's where we're going to end today. Thanks for tuning in. If you haven't seen our launch video for the Bible Blueprint, A Guide to Better Understanding the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, check it out on any of our social media pages, including YouTube. Or you can find the link on our website, Proverbs910Ministries.com. Have a blessed day, everyone. 